0: Well, I'm going to be focusing on uh, verses 18 to 21, uh, the ministry of reconciliation. But before we do that, let's uh, come before the Lord and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are the God of grace and mercy, that you have looked upon this world in mercy and, and not given everyone what we deserve. Lord, we pray that as we think about that now, as we study this part of your word, that you would speak to us and remind us of the great privilege of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we ask that you would also convict us and remind us of what we are here to do, uh, to serve the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. What is the church on about? What is the ministry of the church supposed to achieve? That's what I want to know from this text today. So when we think of ministry... Uh, Ministry, it's a word which just means a service to others. So ministry is serving uh, other people and, of course, serving God. But today, if you look out into all of the churches that are around, and I'm not just talking about the Presbyterian Church, if you look at all the churches that are around today and to look at the ministries that are going on, what you see is that there are lots of different approaches, uh, various perspectives on how things are to be done. And what we see is that there is a great variety uh, within ministry. Now, all of this could be evidence of great efforts to reach specific people in specific contexts. Or, all of this variety could be evidence of great confusion as to what ministry is really all about. See, this text that we're looking at is one where Paul describes his ministry that he received from God. And it shows us what needs to be the focus of the church's ministry today. The church that was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. See, this passage is actually part of a large section in 2 Corinthians where Paul has to respond to criticisms, uh, criticisms against him. Uh, Paul had planted the church in Corinth. After he had left, some false teachers had moved in, uh, people who were very eloquent in their speaking abilities, people who had uh, letters of recommendation, which we assume would be something like a, a degree of some type. And these self-appointed ministers who moved in, they captured the heart of the Corinthians, with their their style, uh, their charisma. And as a result, the Corinthians forgot about Paul and started following these new guys, these impressive uh, ministers. And as a result, they not only rejected Paul as a person, but they began to question Paul's ministry. They began to question the integrity of the Apostle Paul. And so this letter was written by Paul to that Corinthian church to call them back to the gospel that he had established uh, there. And see, this was a very big deal. This wasn't just a case of a jealous pastor, upset because his people had gone and started following someone else more talented. Paul had a unique ministry. He was called by Jesus himself. He was called to take the message of the gospel to the Gentile world, And so when Paul went out there, he didn't just speak ideas that he had made up. He didn't speak uh, just his own opinion. Paul spoke a message from God. He spoke on God's behalf. And that's why it was such a big deal that the Corinthians were questioning the integrity of his ministry. To reject Paul was to reject the one who sent him. And that's why Paul spends nearly most of his time in this letter dealing with these criticisms, answering them, showing the Corinthians where they have gone wrong and calling them back to follow Jesus. And so the section that we're looking at is just one tiny little snippet of Paul's defence of his ministry. And we're going to look at these verses in verses 18 to 21 because in these verses what we see is the pinnacle of Paul's defence, the pinnacle of his argument that shows how he understood his ministry as an apostle. It was a ministry directly from God and in response to the work that God is doing in this world. And so by implication, it speaks to us today. It speaks to what we understand the ministry of the gospel to be all about. So it has implications for what we do today. So if we ask the question, what are we supposed to be on about as a church? This is actually a good place to begin. So here Paul, he describes his work or his ministry as a direct outcome of the work that God is doing in the world. So let's have a look at this work that God is doing in verses 18 to 19. If you have a Bible open, uh, you can follow along. Uh, Paul writes, all this is from God. That is, he's just mentioned the new creation uh, in Jesus. Uh, He's mentioned the cross of Christ, uh, the difference that makes in a person's life. He says, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Notice how Paul describes God's work in the world. God is reconciling the world to himself. Now, what does that exactly mean? Well, reconciliation is a word that all of you should have some idea uh, about. I mean, we still use it today. I remember uh, when I was in high school, I had to do an essay on the issue of reconciliation uh, within Australia. You know, you had the uh, indigenous people. ...and other people, and there was that big clash of ideas. And so there needed to be reconciliation. So we know what reconciliation is. It's about making peace between two hostile parties. It's about making peace between enemies. And so reconciliation happens when enemies stop being hostile to each other... ...and actually become friends... That is reconciliation. So what it's really about is a restored relationship from enemies to friends. And here Paul is talking about reconciliation, not between people, but between God and people. This is God's work of reconciling the world to himself. And so what Paul is saying is that there is only one way to be friends with God, and that is through the provision that God makes to be reconciled to himself. Now, there's an implication here that we need to explore. Because if God needs to reconcile the world to himself, then that says something about the condition of the world. Apart from God's work of reconciliation, the world is at enmity with God, The world is an enemy of God. People are not on friendly terms with God, but rather are his enemies. In our natural state as human beings, born under the curse of sin, we are enemies with God. Paul states that very plainly in Colossians 1, verse 21. Uh, Speaking of believers, he says, Once you were alienated from God... And we're enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. So you notice the terms Paul uses there, alienated, enemies. We're not on good terms with God apart from reconciliation. Now that raises an important question I think today because if we're naturally alienated and naturally enemies of God then why is it that people don't really feel that way? Why is it that if you speak with the average non-Christian on the street and ask them about their relationship with God, they will tell you something like this, oh yeah, God and me, we're, we're on speaking terms, we're all fine. Uh, if you talk to your non-Christian friend and say, listen, you are in rebellion against God, you have rejected him, you are his enemy, you need to turn in repentance and submit to Jesus or you will go to hell. If you say that to your non-Christian friend, the most likely thing is this. They will say, whoa, 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 back up a minute. I know I'm not perfect, and no one is, but man, enemies? That's not right. I mean, me and God are okay. You know, every now and then I I say a little prayer to him. I do lots of good things. Surely he's impressed by them. I even go to church once a year on Easter. So surely not enemies? People don't feel like enemies of God. People don't feel alienated to God. And maybe some of you here feel that way. So why is that then? Why does the Bible describe our predicament as human beings in terms of alienation and in terms of enemies rather than just something like indifferent or ignorant? Why is that? Well, there are a couple of reasons I'll just uh, mention a couple. Uh, Well, there's actually a lot of reasons, but I'll mention a couple. Uh, One reason is that people tend to have a wrong view of sin. People tend to think of sin as those really, really bad things that really, really bad people do and should go uh, to jail. They fail to see that sin is any transgression of the law of God any failure to do the law of God and more importantly they fail to see that behind any failure to do God's law is this attitude that says I know better than God. I am the master of my own life. God has no right to tell me what to do. Doesn't that sound like rebellion? The other thing about sin is that it makes us self-centered. It distorts our view of of reality, about ourselves. Sin makes us think that we are the centre of the universe, that we are the ones who set the law. And according to our books, we're pretty good. People don't feel like enemies of God because of the effects of sin distorting our view of reality and especially distorting our view of ourselves. Now, another major reason why people don't feel like enemies of God Really comes down to the fact that they have the wrong view of God. They don't understand who we are dealing with when we are speaking about God. They make up their own God. They'll say things like God is loving, it's his job to forgive me. That warm and fuzzy feeling they have about, about God when they think about relationships, it's actually not the God of the Bible. Not the holy, sovereign, eternal, living God. Anyone who who really comes to know the living God does not say, let's go and have a cup of tea together. Okay, when you read through the Bible and you see people coming face to face with God himself, they don't invite God in for a coffee. It's not friendly terms. In fact, they say things like, I want to die. I want to hide. Think about Isaiah when he saw that vision into the very throne room of God. And what did Isaiah say? I am ruined. Woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So we see people don't feel like enemies of God because of a distorted view of sin and a distorted view of God himself. And that's why the saying, just go with your feelings, do you know that's the worst thing you could do when it comes to dealing with God? If you go with your feelings, you'll get it all wrong. If you're here today and you haven't been reconciled to God... Don't just go with your feelings, go with what God says in his word. You are enemies, you are alienated from him, you need the provision of reconciliation that he provides or you will not be friends with God. In fact, the Bible says that all of those who do not come to God his way will be cut off forever and will spend eternity separated from him. You must be reconciled to God. Well, how does God do it then? How does God make enemies his friends? Well, we see that in verse 19. Have a look there with me. It says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. So here we see that it's all done through Jesus Christ the thing that made us enemies of God was our sin and evil behaviour. We saw that in Colossians 1.21. But what God does in Christ, according to verse 19, it says that he does not count men's sins against them. He doesn't hold the very thing that made us his enemies against us. Why is that? Did God just sweep our sin under the carpet? Did he take out the record book and rip it up and throw it away? How does God do this? I mean, where would the justice be if he just said, oh, you know, all of those bad things you did? Let's just forget about it. Where would the justice be in that? Imagine if that happened in a courtroom where someone, a victim of a terrible crime, and the judge just took it out, the, the record, ripped it up and said, there you go, it's all dealt with. Where would the justice be? Well, God has done something about our sin but it hasn't been sweeping it under the carpet or ripping up the record book. We read what he has done in verse 21. It says that God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in this verse, Paul is talking about what Jesus achieved at the cross. And and what Paul describes is what we call a substitute. Does everyone here watch the footy? Football? No? I'm sure you know what a substitute anyway is. Uh, About halfway through the third quarter, uh, a little guy in a a red jumper, or a red uh, uh, singlet thing, he throws it off, runs out onto the field, and that's the substitute. His job is to take the place of another player. So a substitute is someone who takes the place of another. Well, Jesus served as our substitute. And look how it describes him in verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Do you see the role of the substitute there? What does it mean for Jesus to become sin for us? To take our place in that way? Well, it means that he took the responsibility for all of the things that we've done wrong, all of the things that we've done against God as his enemies. As our substitute, Jesus was treated as if he had done the things that we have done. He was treated as if he was responsible for our rejection of God. And so as a result, Jesus was punished in our place. He took it all on the cross. That's what the cross was all about. He wasn't dying for his own sin because this verse says that he had no sin. He was dying for the sin of another, of everyone who comes to him in faith. It's all paid for. And look at the purpose of Jesus becoming the substitute in this verse. Uh, We see it in the second part. It says, so that... In him, we might become the righteousness of God. Because Jesus got punished, everyone who believes does not get punished, but instead gets the righteousness. Not our own righteousness. The righteousness that Jesus earned as that sinless Lamb of God. And so in God's courtroom... The records haven't been ripped up and thrown away. What we see is that the records have been transferred. A great exchange has taken place where for all of those who would be reconciled, God takes all of our sin, everything we've done against him, he's transferred it all onto Jesus' account. And then he's taken the righteousness that Jesus had and has transferred it into our account. So that Jesus got punished, we go free. Jesus was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's why if you turn to Jesus, God does not count your sin against you because it has already been dealt with at the cross. Because Jesus has died, enemies of God, people like us, can be made friends with our Creator. That is the only way enemies can be made friends. No one can be friends with God unless they go through God's provision of reconciliation through the cross. Now just think about the implications of that for a moment. To be friends with God... What could be greater than to know God as a friend? But that was the aim of reconciliation, to to have that relationship restored, where the hostility is gone, but now there is friendship, there is union, there is peace. Reconciliation is all about the restoration of a relationship. And I think that's a helpful corrective today because there's a lot of views of the cross which tend to kind of dumb it down a bit, or empty it of, of its real meaning. See, for example, some people see the cross of Jesus as just uh, an insurance policy. You know, that they, they'll accept what Jesus has done just in case it's all true, and that way, they can just be confident that they won't have to go to hell when they die. Uh, I'll tell you a story. Uh, when I was in uni, about ten years ago, Uh, One of the blokes in my course came to me one week and said, Guess what I did over the weekend? And I said, What did you do on the weekend? And he said, I became a Christian. Now, I nearly died from excitement because I had no idea that this guy was even remotely interested in listening to the gospel. And yet he'd become a Christian. And so I was excited. And so I asked him, You know, how did that happen? Uh, What did you learn? And one of the things I asked him was, well, now that you're a Christian, where are you planning on going to church? And he looked a little bit surprised and confused. He said, why would I need to go to church? I'm now right with God. You know, he's paid for my sins. I'm going to heaven. Why would I need to think about it anymore? Now, what's wrong with that picture? That doesn't really match what Paul says in 2 Corinthians See, being reconciled to God is not just about being forgiven, even though if if it was, I mean, that alone would be amazing. But the point of reconciliation is actually the restoration of relationship, where we go from enemies of God to being friends and living in relationship with God. Yes, it results in not going to hell. Yes, it results in forgiveness, which is amazing. But it's about restored relationship. And so I wonder, for you to here today, would you describe your relationship with God as a relationship? Or is it something that, that has, has happened in your life at some stage, but you don't give much thought to it today? Do you know God as a friend? Would you say that you have a relationship with him? Because that is the aim of the cross, that we would know God as a saviour, as a father, as a friend. Because reconciliation goes from rebellion to submission, enemies to friends, separation to union. And notice that all of this, it's God's doing. He designed it all. He planned it all. He provided the substitute. We receive all of this. As a gift, we haven't done anything. It's all done for us through Jesus. This is God's work of reconciling the world to himself. Now remember what I said earlier, that this is part of Paul's defense of his ministry. So Paul is saying, this is what I'm on about to the Corinthians. My work as an apostle, my ministry is in direct response to what God is doing in the world. That's why Paul has written this. And so if we understand that God's work is primarily about reconciling the world to himself through the cross of Christ, then that has implications for our ministry as it did for Paul. So we're going to explore that now. What what does the, the reconciliation that God has provided have to do with our ministry today? We'll look at how Paul describes it in verse 18. He says, All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice how Paul describes his ministry. He actually calls it the ministry of reconciliation. That's because he sees his work as a direct response to God's work. It tells us that the, the point... Of Paul's ministry was to help people receive this reconciliation from God. Remember, I said at the start ministry, what it means is serving others. Paul's ministry was about helping other people and serving other people so that they would be reconnected with God, that they would become his friends. And that tells us a lot about genuine ministry today. At the very least, genuine ministry in the church must have as its core the task of helping people become friends with god through the gospel just as it was the primary task of paul the apostle it's the primary task of the church today that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets we have the same ministry because we have the gospel That means as a church we're not just a social club uh, to meet the the needs of our members. As a church we're not just a social service that aims to improve the living conditions of of our society. I mean, they're all good outworkings of this message but we exist primarily to help people come to friendship with God through Christ. That's what genuine gospel ministry is centred on. And how we go about that, it will differ in place to place. Obviously, the ministry here in the Kerrang Presbyterian Church will look a lot different to, say, something like uh, ministry to orphans in Malawi. Okay? How it's carried out will be different. But what will be at the centre of it will be this ministry of reconciliation, serving people with the aim of them, them being reconciled to God. That is what genuine ministry is all about. And we see in verse 19 that Paul says uh, he has a, rec- uh, a ministry of reconciliation from God, but he's also been tr- entrusted with a message of reconciliation. Uh, so Paul's ministry of reconciliation was actually centered on this message of reconciliation. That tells us that the, the characteristic of Paul's ministry was actually speaking. It was a message. It wasn't primarily in terms of you know, doing jobs. It was mostly focused in speaking, You know the message, getting the message out of reconciliation. In fact, he uses this incredible description to really capture what it was like. Have a look with me at verse 19. Uh, sorry, verse twenty he says, "We are therefore christ 's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on christ 's behalf, be reconciled to God. so here paul he, he describes it as an ambassador, and you know what an ambassador is because we still have them today. An ambassador is someone who represents a country or even a company, and that person is is the one whose job is to speak on behalf of the country or to speak on behalf of the company. And what they do is that they never give their own opinion on any matter. They only say what has been entrusted to them by the country or by a company. And so as an ambassador for Christ, Paul is saying that he has been sent by Jesus, not to give his own opinion, not to make up stories, but simply to say all that had been entrusted to him. He was just saying what God said. And that's why he could say, it's as if God was making his appeal through us. He could say that we are spokesmen of God. That when Paul was declaring this message of reconciliation, people It was as if they were hearing the voice of God. And it's really quite remarkable when you think about it because God could have done this any other way. God could have brought this message of reconciliation any other way. I mean, he could have had writing in the sky. He could have had a voice from heaven. He could have even had a donkey talking to people. But he chose to use the ones that he reconciles to be the instruments of carrying that message to the, to the generations. And that's why Paul even describes himself in, in chapter 6, verse 1, you can see it on the page, as God's fellow workers. <clears throat> God was involved, is involved in reconciliation and he calls his workers to also be involved of bringing that message uh, to people. And again, that tells us a lot about the focus of genuine ministry. Because after 2,000 years, this message of reconciliation has not changed. There is still only one way to be reconciled with God, and that is through the cross. And so whatever form ministry takes today, one thing cannot change, and that is the message. And also the aim to, to get across this message. And that's why whatever form of ministry we take, whether it is like a service to helping people, you know like the ministry in Malawi they're serving the needs of orphans that's a very important need but behind that is a desire to get across to these little kids the message of reconciliation that they can be friends with God that they can have God as their father and it's the same here our ministry should have this task of speaking forth The gospel, telling people like Paul did to be reconciled to God. And this this statement, be reconciled to God, it's not just a suggestion, it's not even a statement of fact, it's actually a command. God commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from their rebellion, and to turn to Christ to be reconciled. This message of reconciliation has not changed. And so it should characterise our ministry in the Presbyterian Church today. So here we see in this passage, Paul defends his ministry to the critics at Corinth. First, he reminds them of what God is doing in the world. Reconciling people through Christ. And that shaped what Paul did. He defines his ministry as one of helping people obtain this reconciliation. And Paul's ministry of reconciliation was all about getting across the message of reconciliation. That God in Christ has not counted our sins against us, but has made Jesus to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. The message hasn't changed. What we do as a church today must be to get across this message, that God has made a way to go from enemies to friends. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this wonderful truth, uh, the truth of the gospel. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that in Christ you have not counted our sins against us. We thank you for Jesus, for his willingness to be that substitute, to be the one who was made responsible for our sin. And we thank you, Lord, that he had no sin, that he lived that perfect life and willingly offered it up on the cross so that we could be forgiven. We thank you also, Father, that we have friendship with you. We thank you that we can look forward to spending all of eternity with you because of your grace and mercy in the cross. And Father, we do pray for the ministry that we have here. Uh, We pray for the wider Presbyterian Church and even for the other churches, Lord. We pray that what would be clear is this message of the cross, that more and more people throughout Australia and even throughout the world would come to know Christ as their Lord and Saviour and that they would be reconciled through him. Help us, Lord, even in our own homes and family and family, among our friends and neighbours, to be ambassadors for Christ, telling people to turn to you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.